Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It's good to be back, Owen, a nice and early recording session today. Yeah, we jumped on at 7am this morning. It's Friday morning before the, the Monday recording goes out and it is early. Yeah. So, <laughs> early, earlier than usual. But hey, we're talking about finance and we're answering some questions. So it's pretty fun and pretty easy. So um, we hope the listeners enjoy this. But um, just a few things before we get into the questions and answers. Um, obviously, this podcast contains general financial advice only if there's any advice in it at all. Because seriously, I don't think it is advice. And so that means that if um, you hear this, you know, our answers to these questions, um, the information is not specific to any one of you, any listener uh, in particular. So keep that in mind. And if you need personal advice, you'd be best off going to see a financial planner. And Kate, you said that we should probably get some questions rolling in. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to start doing these sort of broader Q&As going forward. So you can send them through to podcast at raskfinance.com. We'll put that in the show notes. And also, if you've been enjoying listening to the podcast over the last few months and are listening through Apple Podcasts, we'd love if you could leave us a review. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Too early. Say that right. Yep. Um, That really supports us and helps us share this free content with a larger audience as well. So that would be amazing if you could do that. Yeah, because we really don't, um, we, we've we re- really never asked for reviews or anything like that, but some of our fabulous listeners have gone out and done that anyway. Um, and it, it brings a smile to our time when we see some of the really uh, nice things you have to say, but also some constructive criticism, whatever whatever you think is appropriate, just go on in there, it takes two seconds and just let us know. Mm, I but think we had our first constructive review a few weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, we did. We always have, um, we always have a look and... Uh, yeah, it's it's just good to get feedback. It's good to see what you think and, and see what you like. And obviously, you can reach us directly through our email podcast at rasfinance.com um, or just go to the RAS website and hit in the, the contact form there and, and put your put your words in there. Anyway, Kate, we've got some questions come through. We've got about six in total. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they range. They're a little bit different all around. So maybe I'll throw it over to you to, to get this first one off the off, off base. We'll get us off base. Yeah. So the first question I got recently was someone was asking for help for those starting their finance journey in late 30s, 40s, 50s, because most of the content out there is aimed at a younger audience. And the compound interest calculator doesn't look so great when you've only got a decade or so before retirement. Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, I, I could agree that a lot of content out there is probably done by younger people. I mean, most of the podcasts are probably. Australian finance podcasts are probably run by people under 40. I think yeah. just because sort of maybe a little bit more tech savvy or that's they're sort of interested in doing that and sort of using those technologies. I mean, certainly a lot of people on Instagram sharing um, their finance journeys are younger, but there definitely are people starting on later in life. So it's just probably you've got to look a little bit further um, and just sort of have a look at more stories maybe or talk to 
there's even financial advisors that specialise in helping people that are starting later in life as well. So it's just sort of finding different people to help inspire you along your journey. Yeah, and I think I've just got some notes here. That it, 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 is, it might seem different when you're 40 or 50 versus when, you know, it, you might, it might be a 20 or 30-year-old you're speaking to. It might seem like a different process, like financial advice or, you know, getting your finances in order, investing, etc. But it really isn't that much different. Like I've got some notes here. So a 30-year-old, if you're, you know, in 20s to 30s, um, I say 20s to 30s because, you know, hey, I'm 29, so you know, still in my 20s, whatever. Um, but I'm like, there's some things here that people would probably be focusing on. The things that they would be focusing on are savings, mortgages. So they might have just got a mortgage or they're looking at getting one, so they need to save for a deposit. Uh, there'll be maybe some education costs in there. So maybe if you're in your 30s or late 20s, you might have kids. Um, and you want to, you still want to invest, but it's kind of like this last priority because you simply oftentimes don't have enough money but you still want to do something and you still want to learn. So that's probably the priorities when you're your 30s, when you're in your 20s or 30s. In your 40s, you're probably looking at the same stuff, but you maybe you've got a bit more in your budget to do a little bit more investing. Maybe you're investing $500 a fortnight, $1,000 a month, you know, $2,000, whatever it might be. But you're probably tilting more towards that investing piece. And then the final um, bucket, if you like, just of these three, which is that 50-year-old plus, you probably don't have the education costs. Kids aren't at school anymore. Um, you've probably got more savings under your belt simply because you have been saving for longer. You're probably earning a bit more and you're probably wanting to invest a lot more for your retirement. Now, that all of those things, that they might seem like three completely different buckets, but they're actually the same thing. And what you're trying to do is just make sure that your expenses are lower and your income is higher. Um, and that's really just driving a wedge in there. So you know, a financial advisor would have the same kind of advice for a third, for a twenty-year-old versus a fifty-year-old. The only difference would be the risk profiles. You know, if I could take broad strokes to it, they would just say, "If you're young, take as much risk as you can, really, and if you're older, maybe consider that you might rely on this money in ten to fifteen years." We might go with a slightly less aggressive approach, a slightly less aggressive, but it's pretty much the same advice: earn more, spend less. Like it's it's an old <laughs> finance joke, but it actually is true. So. Then when you go to look for resources on these things, what you should be looking for is probably the episodes in our podcast series, for example, that are relevant to you if you're in one of these life stages. Um, a really good podcast for people that are probably um, towards retirement, but it, it focuses more, if I'm honest, on the wealthier age bracket is um, the Money Cafe. So it's run by Alan Collar and um, oh, I forgot his name from- James Kirby. James Kirby, that's it. Yeah, great guy. Um those two guys are, are talking about, you know, geopolitical things, about the economy, about different strategies. That's a, that's a good podcast, really popular um, if you're interested in that one. If you're a bit, you know, maybe if you're in the 50s or 60s and you're listening to this, that's maybe something that you'd be interested in. Anyway, that was a long-winded answer to that first question, so I'll try to be more concise. But it's an interesting question. Mm. Um, the next one relates to that first question. And Kate, what is the second question? So the second question was, should you get a financial advisor if you've only got a small amount of money to manage? Now, whether that's a grand or 10 grand, um, often getting seeing a financial advisor can be a, a quite a few thousand dollars up front to get a statement of advice. So it's, um, I guess the question was weighing up, well, if you've only got a small amount of money, is it worth paying that upfront cost when you're not really going to have much to do with it? Yeah. And what do you think? Do you think, like, let's say if you're starting out, maybe you've got, let's just hypothetically, you've got kids, um, 
you've only got you know two to five thousand dollars which you think I could invest that because I've got my emergency savings or I should or I could go and see a financial advisor and, and spend that money there what do you think I think um, financial advisors can offer services that aren't just about investing they might be able to help you with your insurances and all sorts of things like that so that could be um, a reason why you want to see them and just not in specifically in regards to investing or they could help you put a plan together to start saving and investing more um, I often say if you if you don't have if you don't even have the grand or two that you'll need to actually see a financial advisor then it's probably not sensible to I would never pay on a credit card or go into debt to do it um, but mm. yeah there's a lot of basics by listening to our previous podcast, there's a lot of other ones out there. Um, a lot of financial advisors actually are starting blogs or podcasts too. So you can actually go and, well, even doing webinars and things. So, uh, and a lot have books now. So you just go and read all of their resources because you're getting the expertise and knowledge of a financial advisor uh, for a lot less. So that might be a starting point to see if that's something um, why you start building up. I think that base level of funds and then maybe finding the right financial advisor for you and they might be able to create a plan for you to move forward. Yeah, and I think this is the thing. I talk to a lot of financial advisors. In fact, I've worked with a few I work with a few in my office. And so what what I tend to see from them and what I tend to hear from them is, you know, we don't like necessarily not that we don't like it, but we prefer the people to come in and not be absolute beginners. Mm. They know that their job is to educate their clients. That's pretty much what we all have to do. But they prefer it if you have some understanding of finance to begin with because there's two reasons for this. One, they'll feel bad charging you fees and doing the full statement of advice if they simply, if you simply don't have the, the wealth to and that knowledge to implement a lot of the strategies that they have. Mm. But two, it's also a better conversation. You, you end up like if you know what super is, like you know that it's a place where you put money and it's a separate tax structure and all this stuff. If you know that, that's a much better conversation than what is super, you know, like, um, you know, you, you, they get a lot of people call in that would say, you know, what is super, you know, can I take my money out now? I'm 37. And like, if you understand the basics, it's going to be a better conversation. So mm-hmm. there are a few things here that I've got. I think this is, a, this is, it can be a tough one because if you don't have the money, like let's say if you've got the $2,000, a hypothetical situation, it's actually a really good time to see a financial planner so you can get more money because you can put into place these strategies. Mm. But at the same time, that uses a lot of your money in fees. So as you said, I totally agree with you, Kate, that you should probably have you know, this kind of a spectrum, right? You start off learning from resources like ours, which are free. Then you might even take our courses or you might go listen to other podcasts or you might download eBooks or read actual books. Um, <laughs> Yes, that still happens. And uh, and then, you know, you can use those strategies to grow your wealth and then be in a position where you feel confident to see a financial advisor. Mm-hmm. If you're in a lot of debt and you're worried about, oh, should I use my credit card to see a financial planner? I'd probably say go see a financial counsellor. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is a free service. But let's say, for example, like we've talked about this so many times, but um, if, you, if you sort out your super, you can do that pretty quickly yourself. There's a question on this in just a moment. Um, if... Like that will save you thousands of dollars each year in super fees and whatever. Um, if you are on top of your taxes, which to be honest, you can do pretty well if you listen to our tax episodes or you talk to um, people online, you can get some pretty good advice. Um, if you get like the lowest cost insurances for your car, for your house, whatever. Um, if you if you have good savings accounts that aren't charging you an arm and a leg just to have some weird thing um, going on in there, 
And the final one is if you can get your mortgage interest rate down, that's going to save you, you know, who knows what, maybe $500 a month. And so all of these things combined, you know, they're very basic steps that anyone can take to save up to say $1,000 a month. Mm. Um, I'm not like, that's like, I'm just being generalizing. I'm just generalizing here. Like not everyone will save $1,000 a month, but there's potential that if you get on top of this stuff, you could start to see some serious savings, which then you can put forward to seeing a financial advisor. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think if you go into the room with a financial advisor and you've done some of your background reading and it sort of started to educate yourself, it's going to be a much better conversation and you're going to be able to start asking the right questions and you're going to be able to ask them, um, what are you, what am I paying for? <laughs> I think that's often if you go into that room and you're overwhelmed, you might just sign on the dotted line. I mean, I've done that in a doctor's office before. You go in, they tell you things you don't understand, you just kind of just say yes because you're overwhelmed. So if you go in with armed with some knowledge, some research, and then you can you can actually have a conversation with them. Yeah, totally. And that's the that's the thing. Like, you know, I'm getting some stuff done around the house now. And you, you want to just talk to people. Sometimes you just want to talk to people, right? Mm. You want to get a candid answer. But unfortunately, in finance, which is this crazy and stupid, the way the regulations work in Australia is you can't just walk up to someone like me or you and say, hey, this is my situation. I'm just trying to get some general information from you. Finance rules don't allow you to do that. So it's really kind of like you're flying in the dark. Mm. and Or you're um, forced to a forum. You're forced to a forum, which is full of uneducated people. Like I just think, the, anyway, the rules in Australia are just totally backward in my mind for financial advice. But um, I think, you know, the best thing you can do is just educate yourself in your own time, um, save up, continue to use the free resources around you, um, maybe even speak to your family and friends that you think are knowledgeable and wealthy, um, and then then move on from there. Kate, okay, next question is about having multiple bank accounts. Now, I know you've got a few few bank accounts under your belt, so uh, you'll be, you're the expert here. So um, this is a question, um, this comes through and asks, um, you know, I've got, um, uh, what do you think about opening multiple bank accounts um, to help categorize and organize your money? Um, and is this a good idea or not? Um, will you be doing an episode on neobanking? I think we've done one. Have we? Uh, may, I think we did banks early on but I don't know if we've done neobanking exactly so I'll have a look and if not uh, I can certainly get one of the uh, neobanks on the show and we can have a chat yep sure and I think you've covered it briefly like about the the different structures and ADIs and that type of stuff but anyway this is about having multiple bank accounts categorizing your money Um, he says I have business bank accounts as well as personal accounts but I feel like I could be doing this better I'd like to separate money aside for tax and other expenses etc Whew, that's a that's a good question. <laughs> Few so I'll, Few I'll maybe, maybe I'll just throw some things off. So I would say that some people love to have many different bank accounts. Many people just like to have one or two. And I've seen both of those be very effective strategies. Mm-hmm. So for example, I have multiple bank accounts for my personal savings and we have quite a few for our business. They're with different banks. Now we also have one for a different bank altogether for our mortgage. So we've got three different banks and within them, there are different bank accounts. And I think that that's perfectly reasonable. You know, they don't charge us any fees across any of the accounts. So there's no risk of us having that. Um, And I think it's good to have separation, particularly for your business. You should always have your business separate from your personal um, accounts because it's very easy just for money to fly in between and it shouldn't because it would be a massive headache for your accountant (laughs) and you don't want the ATO to ask any questions. Yeah. So keep them separate, definitely. Um, There is probably, Kate, I think there's probably risk with having it all with one bank. Yeah, I mean, in in 
sort of the last two years, we've seen sort of some of the major big four banks have massive outages that last for many hours and where people just can't tap and pay for their meals. So um, I think there is a benefit in having at least some money with a backup bank or a secondary financial institution um, just in case, maybe just even if it's just a couple of hundred dollars on that card just so if one of them goes down, you've got a backup. Um, So I think that's that's quite important, even if you don't want to use that as your main bank, just having some sort of backup there. Um, and also I think I think it, there is good because then often bank accounts will have different interest rates on savings accounts at different times. So sometimes it can be good to switch between them to to get a better deal. I mean, at the moment interest is so so low it doesn't it, it doesn't matter that much. but if if it's the difference between maybe one point six percent and one percent, then that's quite a lot if you're saving up for your house deposits so um Mm. yeah just maybe have a look what you're getting the better deal on i mean the only downside i think of having too many bank accounts is you lose track of things um so if you're having a few different accounts for different personal um savings accounts maybe ones for tax ones for your holiday ones for your house deposit um and if you're having different accounts for your business i just I don't know if you want to keep track of them on an app like Frollo or a spreadsheet, but just so you don't lose track of anything uh, mm. as well because it it is your money, so you, you want to keep a close eye on it. Yeah, and um, I just think is you you want to know what the the fees are and the interest rates are. Mm. And when you, as Kate said, when you take um, note of the interest rate, just take note of the different um, like asterisks because like, you know, <laughs> there's an orange bank in Australia that um, has a pretty good interest rate for people that are saving. But um, at the same time, you have to do certain things yeah. to get that bonus interest. So if you so. if you went straight across to that certain bank and you didn't actually uh, do the steps involved like making purchases and putting money in each month, then you're suddenly not getting that interest rate. And I think the interest rate, if you're not doing it, is quite minimal. So um, yeah. you've just got to remember you might have gone over for this nice interest rate, but you've actually, there's often steps to inv- involved to keep that interest rate. Yep. And if you have a mortgage, um, oftentimes if you want better interest rate, you can use an offset account or a redraw facility. Mm. Anyhow, so the next question is, are ETFs blowing up? And um, Brant, wrote it, Brant wrote in, I should say, and said, you know, amazing program um, that you guys have put together. It has really fast-tracked my knowledge and inspired me on my investing journey. Oh, thanks, Brant. Um, <laughs> He, he says, I have a question regarding the future of ETFs and their viability. Obviously, you would be well aware of the individuals who predict ETFs to cause the next bubble to burst when their market share becomes too great. I was wondering if you feel this will happen at some stage as John Bogle, who is the, the founder of Vanguard, by the way, um, the late founder of Vanguard, he even said that if 100% of investors choose ETFs and the market would be flawed. I was wondering your opinion on this and why you think it won't happen. Good question. Um, happy to field this one. So <clears throat> when you talk about index funds and ETFs, um, a lot of people, particularly in the early days of ETFs, only thought that ETFs were index funds. So index funds, which is a, a strategy where the investing in that fund follows an index like the ASX 200. So it buys all of the shares in the ASX 200 or the S&P 500 in the USA. So it buys all 500 in the USA. When the ETFs first came out, most of them, were index fund strategies. Mm. So they just took an index fund and they put it in an ETF wrapper. Now, when people say, oh, you know, if the 100% of the market becomes um, an ETF, then the world is, is going to go down. 
it's not necessarily going to happen because now what we have is different strategies inside ETFs. So we have strategies um, that might follow an index, like an index fund ETF, that's what I call them. But then we might have other strategies. And a really good example of that might be, say, in Australia, the bear ETF, which is kind of the total opposite of that. So if the index goes up, that actually goes down. That's a really risky ETF and it goes the opposite way of the stock market. And so, you know, there's ETFs that do completely different things. And I think Bogle's words might have been taken out of context here because if 100% of people do one thing, right, like it doesn't matter if it's investing or whatever, there will be some people in that that recognize that, hey, everyone else is doing this. I'm going to be a little bit different and I'm going to make money from that. So, for example, like if everyone invested one way, meaning like everyone invested $1,000 into the stock market on exactly the same day, then people would be smart and go, I'm going to do it the day before so I can get the money. Like when the stock market goes up the next day from everyone buying, I can make money from that. And so what we've seen over time is that even though there's been this explosion of index funds and people investing in ETFs, there's been a heap of people that invest differently. Mm-hmm. And so this mix, it's, it's, it's just changing the way people invest, but it's actually still a mix of people investing differently. So what I mean to say is, it's, even if people invest 100% of their money in ETFs and the whole of Australia does that, even within those ETFs, there will be different strategies. So there's no necessary, there's not a chance necessarily that you know, it's all going to change. But you know, I, I'm, for one case, you know, you know, I still invest in individual shares and ETFs, and I think the majority of people do that. Mm. And I think there's, I was also reading, there's actually a lot higher turnover with ETFs. It's not like everyone's going and buying their ETFs and never selling them. There's, they're actually turning over a lot. So people, I think it's human nature, but people are not going to just buy an ETF and hold on to it forever. 100% of the population is not going to do that. There's always going to be people buying and selling, wanting to do other things with their money, um, freaking mm-hmm. out when the market goes down, um, trying to time the market. So I think there's a whole lot of sort of human behaviour involved that uh, I don't think we're going to end up with the whole world in ETFs. No. And the thing is, like, there's so many different ways that you could, I guess, answer this question. One of them might be that, you know, we've already talked about it. There's different time horizons for people. So mm-hmm. people are retiring, people are accumulating. There's people that are um, trading. So they have a shorter term time horizon necessarily anyway. I don't think that's a good thing, but they're trading. And there's people like me, they're investing longer term. There's people like you that use ETFs. Um, there's all different things in between, right? So everyone's got their different opinions, different strategies, different time horizons, different risk profiles. So, so many different things going on. And there's all new products coming to the market. The other thing is ETFs, the way they work, they need markets to be liquid. So what I mean by that is when you invest in an ETF, a company behind the scenes will go and collect all the shares that are inside your basket, which is your ETF, and, and put it together for you or put it together for the fund manager and then you get your units. And to do that, they need shares to be traded because otherwise they can't find those shares for the basket. And so I don't think we're anywhere near having that issue yet. I think if it got to that, there would be some regulation in place. But at the moment, everything seems pretty good and everything seems pretty safe from that perspective. Okay, um, that's a great question though on ETFs. It's really right down my alley, so <laughs> great one. Um, the next one, which I'll... Um, uh, avoid using names for because uh, who knows? I don't <laughs> they'll probably know who I'm talking about. But um, this comes from the Australian Finance Podcast resident gym listener um, <laughs> who is also on Twitter and knows who he is. So um, this is a question about super. Um, to cut to the chase, 
Now that I know a thing or two, am I wrong in thinking that I would do a hell of a lot better managing my own super, like with a self-managed super fund, than letting this big super fund, who I've, like that's, uh, was it redacted? Um, Letting this big super fund manage my money and take a cut. My thinking is that I take what small super I have in there and pump it into my favorite ETFs. I am probably super blindsided on this, but is it such a ridiculous thing to do? Or is it safer to keep it managed um, in a big fund, especially as that's apparently what everyone does? So this is a question effectively asking, should I take my money from super, which is with a big super fund, and put it in a self-managed super fund, otherwise known as an SMSF? Now, I'm just going to be straight off the bat here. SMSFs and you know self-managing your super, it's kind of like, it's like, what is it? It's like a self, self-help self book. You get you pick up the book to help yourself, <laughs> right? It's kind of like, is it, I can't remember the oxymoron maybe, but effectively what it is, is people get into self-managed super funds, typically if they're a little bit wealthier and they can use the self-managed super fund to do things that they might not otherwise do because they have a bit more control. But ultimately what ends up happening is a, is a financial advisor or an accountant ends up running the self-managed super fund. It's not always the case, but often it is. And the reason why I bring that up is that oftentimes with self-managed super funds, people are put into them um, because their their accountant or their financial advisor can make money from it mm. because you effectively need them to run this self-managed super fund. Even though it says self-managed, it can be accountant managed or financial advisor managed. Now, that's not always the case, um, but an ASIC review and the Productivity Commission did this big you know study on the industry and found that the minimum amount of money to justify an SMSF is $500,000. So there needs to be $500,000 in there. But in a like the draft version of the Productivity Commission, I'm pretty sure it said $1 million. So what that means is in a self-managed super fund, if you take your money from super and you put it in one of these self-managed super funds, you can still do the same things. You can invest in ETFs, you can invest in um, sometimes in direct property, like a rental property, or you can manage some sort of warehouse. Like let's say you have a business, you might be able to use that SMSF to buy the premises for the business and then blah, 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 blah. But the thing is, you need you need a bit of money to do this. And I think you would really want a, a thorough understanding of accounting, um, a thorough understanding of like the financial services laws, and just generally what you can do with an SMSF before you even consider one. So, you know, you'd go and do a lot of research on this and take a look at ASIC's report because it says that you need a fair bit of money. I don't have a self-managed super fund, even though I'm a you know, individual private investor. I don't have one. Kate, uh, I'm guessing you don't have one? No, not not at this stage, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And has a, probably quite a, probably a million to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I've only had got years to build up my super balance. So, um, yeah, it, it really depends what that balance is look like. I, I mean, some people do start them when they know they're getting um, significant funds in the next few years or they want to do a certain strategy. Mm. I mean, a lot of people I meet, the super fund's kind of their hobby. Um, so I, I've been to a few um, uh, ASX Investor Day conferences and I think a lot of people there, their self-managed super fund's kind of the thing they do when they're retired. Um, so it definitely involves quite a bit of time and effort. Um, if you want to not have any time and effort, you end up paying a lot in fees to your accountant and advisor. So um, you're def- yeah, definitely you're going to have to be willing to put in the time 
And uh, I, I have seen that having a knowledge of accounting has been very beneficial in keeping those costs down as mm. well because you do have to pay certain audit fees, but there are some bits you can do yourself if you actually know what you're doing. Yeah, and this is the thing. Like I, I know some people that use a self-managed super fund and they use them fantastically mm. either with great advice from their financial advisor or accountant or they do it themselves and it's wonderful. But there is another option here, which is something that I use now in my super. Um, I'm with a large super fund and Kate, um, you, I think you know about these. They're called sometimes they're called things like Member Direct. Mm, yeah. Um. So, there. I think some of the big industry funds and some of the um the bank run funds I've seen offer these styles where you it's still under the super fund banner, so it's not in a separate sort of trust or corporation. Um. But you get to choose from often a list of term deposits, ETFs, shares, often shares within the top. 200 or 300 mm. the ASX so they're not letting you go and invest in small caps often yeah, uh, penny stocks. yeah listed investment companies some let you do manage funds so um they're yeah you really want to research the different options available really check their fees and what choices they allow you so don't just open it thinking you're going to be able to go and buy uh, some small cap stock you've read about online because you probably won't be um so yeah just check out all the different options available um and make sure it's something that might be relevant to you before you go opening that up yeah because we're not advocating for it we're not recommending it no, nothing like that that's not what we're here to do we're just here to say that there is an option here yeah um some people some super funds call it member direct some of them call it smsf light like there's all these different words yeah. and titles that they give them. It could give you um, that's sometimes a solution for people who don't want to go the whole cost and um, yep. regulation issues of starting SMSF, but they they're up to the point where they do want to have a little bit more control over their money. Yeah, exactly. And that's so. This is something that, for example, I tend to use, but I don't do anything like crazy with it. I just use this to invest in in my favorite um, index funds and and that type of thing. So. Um, you can still use your super fund as kind of like at your own discretion without going way outside the bounds of like what's reasonable for fees and, and control and that type of thing. Yeah, because so that's, that's, really, that's going to have the biggest impact at the end of the day with your super money. If you're paying like 2% of your super fund balance in fees because you've started an SMSF with a really low balance, that's going to impact you a lot more than the choice you had um, yeah. while running that SMSF. Totally. And I even, and you said before that even older people, as we say older people, people that are approaching or just in retirement tend to use SMSFs as a hobby. Mm. I see that a lot. I see that a lot. I see people that are, um, you know, that's um, early to mid 60s to um, late 60s, that range. They tend to go, oh, geez, I really need to focus on my retirement. I'm going to go see a financial advisor. Financial advisor's like, yeah, you could have an SMSF and you could do the investing yourself. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. But then after two or three years, they're like, geez, I can't be bothered with this anymore. And then what happens is they end up going back to the funds that they started with anyway. And it's kind of like this hobby investor for a while. And then the, the spark dies and then they go back to what they had originally. So seriously consider if like if any of this sort of stuff is worthwhile for you or if you just, you're just happy to put it away. For me, super is my plan B. If my personal investing doesn't go as well as I'd like, at least I've got super and it's managed differently to the way I, I invest personally. Yeah. Okay. Last question, Kate. And it's a good one. Um, I'll, let, I'll just throw it over to you and let you um, fill us in on what this is. Yeah, absolutely. So I got a question the other day and I thought it was a really great one because I hadn't thought about it too much. Um, what do you do if you find out your employer has stopped paying your super? Um, and 
I think uh, when I had a look, the um, the ATO actually has kind of a list of different things, so I've included that in the show notes. But there's a few different steps um, they suggest doing before you go and approach your employer. Um, and I think the the first one was sort of calculate what how much super you should be getting paid. So potentially your working arrangements have changed or um, it, not everyone is entitled to super. So it, it does depend. So there's actually a link I've included mm. in the show notes that's sort of the ATO's tool to estimate your super so you can put in your details. Um, then the next step, um, I think there is a, a quarterly cutoff that the businesses have to make these super. I mean, a lot of people working in large firms, this happens. Super is paid on a monthly basis. But, I mean, I know when I worked at a, a small business a few years ago, they definitely only paid me quarterly. So um, um, I just put a screenshot, but I think I'll, I'll be able to put that in the show notes yeah. as well of those cutoff dates. So your employer has actually a little while to actually pay that money. Mm. Yeah, and this is the thing. It's a big problem, right? And we're probably, uh, regrettably, we're probably seeing it now mm. um, where businesses are really struggling, right? And they don't have to pay super under certain job keeper arrangements or things like that um, because it's effectively they're getting the government money and businesses under under a lot of strain um, really are questioning whether they can afford to pay employees at all, let alone paying them super. So, if they, they think if they can pay the employee um, but not have to pay the super, they'll be happy and I'll be able to get by. Hmm. Um, I would just say, you know, this is very common in smaller businesses and at the moment it will be very much more common in businesses that are exposed to the pandemic and restrictions. Um, so if you're in Victoria or even elsewhere, um, businesses that are, might be struggling, this, this is a, probably a good time to check your super. Um, talk to your, your boss about it if you would feel like you're not getting the right amount or if it's not going in on time. Um, and then maybe, you know, look at other options that you might have to take. Um, one of the things is that most small businesses, this is a tip for small businesses, um, you can now do it automatically. You can pay your super automatically through zero, um, which is really cool. So you can just, when you pay your employees, you just press the button and you say pay super as well. So it's, um, it's that easy. So that's something to keep in mind. But Kate's provided some really good resources here. We've had a few people write into us and say, I don't think I've been paid. Um, really important for your future to get paid super, so keep an eye on it. Um, you know, I mean, this is one of those areas, Kate, where they should be doing it and it's a requirement under law. It's a lot of things going on at the moment, particularly here in Victoria. Mm. Um, it makes it pretty tough to know what's really going on. Are they being genuine? Are they not? Yeah, so, I think some people get into that situation. Often people think about super last because you notice if your paycheck doesn't hit your bank account each month because you're waiting to pay your rent but you often don't notice if your super didn't hit your bank account that month or exactly um, so sometimes uh, employers do leave it whether it's um, done it with good or bad intentions they they might not pay it on time so even if they're paying it late um, or paying it incorrectly or they're not paying it at all, you can report all of that to the ATO and they can investigate that. So I've included the link as well in the show notes. Um, I hadn't actually seen this tool before, but, um, yeah, the ATO has a – I think you just have to put in your tax file number, your details and the period in question and um, the employer's ABN and then the ATO can actually um, go off and investigate that. I mean, who long, who knows how long that investigation takes, but they will. They can investigate that and then different, uh, I'm not sure what methods they use. Maybe they ask the employer to um, pay the super and if not, they 
take further action. But um, yeah, at least there's there's somewhere you can report this. Yeah, that's 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 true. You can do it online. It used to be this old thing where you'd have to write into them. Okay. Um, but this is um, this is I still I guess it's still doing that, but it's doing a bit more efficiently. Yeah. So definitely check it out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the easiest way to check if you haven't been if you've been paid super or not is to probably log into MyGov and check um, what your balance is in there, or just go direct to your super fund website. And like I received, actually, I've got an app. My phone's not with me, but uh, I've got an app for my super fund, and it tells me it sends me a notification that says you just received a contribution. I'm like, hooray! I just paid myself. <laughs> um, but seriously, if you if you if you want that kind of um, that feedback, just like Kate said, with getting the money into your bank account, you notice that. Yeah. You can also get that with an app for a good super fund. So mm. um, might be something to consider to make sure it's going in on time. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's good not to not to see and think about that super money, but I think especially if you're at a, a small business or a business that's struggling, it's good to have that app to just sort of keep an eye on it. Um, and then, mm. I mean, once you're at sort of maybe a larger company, you can say, I'll just check it on the website once a quarter so I'm not looking at my super balance all the time. Yeah, because we've talked about before how it can actually be a bad thing. Yeah. It's double-edged sword yeah. with the, the, the super app. It. Yeah, I'm definitely not going to take my super out using an app, but um, some people will. They'll switch around, so um, don't do that. But, yeah, just for tracking um, contributions, it's, it's a good tool to have. Mm. Cool, okay. That's some, there's some great answers and, and questions in there. I think it was a little bit early for us to, uh, to, to answer these, but um, <laughs> I think we're going to try and – answer these questions more regularly now so we did this in the past we had all these questions then we got a little bit worried about certain things like it being too close to the what's acceptable and what's not um from our perspective um but now we're kind of gonna we're gonna answer your questions so send them in if there's going to be some common themes we're going to try and bundle all the questions together Mm. we might even anonymize them we might have some funky names or something like that to make it a bit of fun um <laughs> but just write, write in your questions we love the feedback um we can't do events right now in melbourne and we can't travel outside of victoria or even our house yep. so um, it's going to make it hard to do events this year but we really want to engage if you want us to do different things please let us know yeah absolutely um remember to get in touch and uh you can find me if you want to send me a question at how to money aus on instagram and twitter and how to money dot online and owen Yep, you can find me at Owen Rask on Twitter. The best place to, um, and at Owen Rask AU on Instagram, but the best place to ask questions is definitely go to, like, to email us, podcast at raskfinance.com or just podcast at rask, it's rask.com.au. Um, you can even find links on our website. That's the best way to get to us. We have a big folder of lots of podcast questions that have come through. So please keep them coming in and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with questions. So, yeah. Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. Awesome. Thanks for listening. 